Welcome to the 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 181 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 90,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are... Mary Curran Hackett, a writer of novels including Proof of Heaven and Proof of Angels. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Joe Hyde, attorney at Procter & Gamble. Hi, Abby. Linda Maupin, former teacher and avid reader. Hey. And I'm Abby Moran, Mercantile Library board member and teacher. Today we'll discuss the third volume of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. And a warning, there will be spoilers discussed today, so proceed at your own discretion. So we have a, a group that's meeting monthly to discuss War and Peace. We are on volume three now. So we've made it more than halfway through the book. In this volume, just as a quick summary, the year is 1812. War has resumed as Napoleon advances to the Russian border. Prince Andre returns to service, refusing a position with the Tsar in order to serve in the army, leading a regiment. After massive losses at Borodino, the Russian army retreats, leaving the French to take Moscow. Having decided to observe the battle, Pierre carries ammunition for an artillery battalion and sees masses of men slaughtered around him. He makes a vague plan to assassinate Napoleon and is taken prisoner. The Rostovs leave their home, emptying carts of their furniture to take wounded Russian soldiers to safety. Prince Andrei, again gravely wounded at Borodino, is among the soldiers brought to the Rostovs' mansion in Moscow and is taken care of by Natasha. So, what did you all think of Volume 3? It's definitely heavy. It was dense. Um, much, I guess, slower paced than considering that there's battles and scenes um, going on than the first two volumes because there's just it's just I don't know how else to say it but dense it's um, there's philosophy there's history there's theory there's the story there's the plot line and then there's um, layers of all of these characters that we're slowly peeling back and getting um, deeper into so um, I just remember it, it was it was it was difficult I felt like of all all four this the third is the most difficult to get through um, I don't know if anybody else agrees with that, but it was, um, but it was rewarding in the sense oh, that so yeah. much happened, um, and as a reader, you're you're just totally sucked in, and I felt completely taken away, and I really wanted to know what was going on, what was happening, and um, what was going to become of all of these characters and their fates, and this is where this is a pivotal pivotal section for all of that. Yeah, I think so, too. I felt like we returned to kind of the macro world event stage. Um, the last 300 and some pages was six years, and it was kind of internally focused on mm -hmm. the life of the court and the life of these individuals. This was four months. <laughs> this 330 pages covered essentially four months in the history of Russia, but it was a pivotal four way. months. Mm -hmm. So I think it allowed exactly. it to be much more analytical, and anybody reading this at the time he wrote it in the 1850s or 60s in Russia would have heard the stories about this from their parents who lived through the invasion and 
lost family members. And so, you know, I felt like he really, not felt like he did, really sink into the different perspectives that one could take on this pivotal moment in the history of, of his nation, the invasion, the abandonment of Moscow, and how it affected all these different people. But he did it in a Tolstoy way, which mm-hmm. means there's tiny, as you said last time, Mary, micro moments, too, mm-hmm. all along the way. Mm-hmm. You're seeing, you're not just hearing about the abandonment of Moscow, but you're with the Rostov family as they're repacking their trunks, trying to figure out what to take and what not to take. Um, and you just you have all these little micro moments that bring it to life. Um, yeah. But it was very focused on a short period of time. Yeah, and that's why it's so dense. Like it's yeah. three yeah. months or four months. Four you months, said. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that, you know, in a book that, and I did weigh it, weighs two <laughs> and a half pounds, um, <laughs> there are these wonderful little, very minute details packed into the density of the text. Um, I, I was thinking about there's one sentence that uh, where Tolstoy makes the observation that this fellow is smiling with his mouth but frowning with his eyebrows. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. who was that? I can't, now I c- I've been looking for it and can't find it, but the uniform is a mask when he writes. Um, Pierre saw a completely different person before him, whether it was because of the uniform or some other reason, but these insights into human nature that mm-hmm. jump up through the paragraph and rivet you in the picture that's created is just, I think, breathtaking. Yeah. Can I add another one that was one of my favorites is the uh, Smolensk is invaded and and they're fleeing from Smolensk to show what's going to come. And there's a barn burning and it burns and goes up in flames. And instead it smelled like pancakes because of the grain that was in the barn. Mm -hmm. And I just had this image of, you know, I mean, what an interesting Mm -hmm. detail to add is all these Mm -hmm. people are watching. They're all ooing and aahing, including the owner of the Mm -hmm. barn Mm -hmm. is there who says, how was that, lads? Wasn't that great, Mm -hmm. lads, to watch his barn go up? And they all smell pancakes because of the grain burning in the barn. And it's just, that's such a Tolstoy moment is it's grand historical stuff going on and yet you have that little detail. And then that that the fatter image of of the evacuation of Moscow seeming like a a, a beehive where the queen bee the has gone. died. Mm-hmm. And it it's just this incredible moment where if you tap on the outside of the hive, if it's a healthy hive, you will hear this uptick of droning and wings fluttering, but Without the queen, when you tap on the outside of the hive, there's this sort of death, empty, nothing mm-hmm. sound. Mm-hmm. Just stunning comparison. Brilliant. Yeah. And the scenes, then you, and then they pan out, and they're looking at Moscow from a distance. And Mr. Rostov is weeping as if for his mother. Mm. Our mother, Moscow, our motherland is gone. Mm -hmm. It's burning before their eyes, and there's this sense of mourning and quiet, and uh, just um, you realize the the hugeness of all of this, that Mm. it's, um, that their their little lives have been disrupted. They're the, because right up until that point, they're worried about their packages and their Mm -hmm. traveling, and Mrs. Rostov is debating whether or not to take soldiers versus her silver, you know, Mm -hmm. they're totally, they're losing perspective and it's not until you can pan out and see this huge burning um, of Moscow and everything that they've had, it will never be the same, all is lost Mm -hmm. and it's it's permanent now and it, it makes it so much more, I guess, real for the first time because up until that point, Natasha, Petya, all of them are completely clueless. They're like, oh, there's, 
rustling and there was a war off there <laughs> and there's some soldiers hurt. They don't quite get the severity of what is really actually happening. Well, it's um, like Americans. I mean, we yeah. don't have anything happening here. So we in don't Ohio. see it. Yeah. So we, the Syrian refugee crisis might as well not be happening because yeah. we don't, it's not, it's not on our, it's not on our front porch. It's not disturbing our life yet. And now for the first time, the Rostovs are coming face to face. I mean, Nikolai was going off to war, but before we, we talked about it in the group, um, it seemed like a very um, arbitrary type of going to war. Like, I, I think I'll drop in at home, do my laundry, I love how, I'll yeah, leave. I love how Linda said he comes <laughs> yeah, home to do his laundry. laundry. <laughs> like and then um, I'll go out to battle, or even, you know, Pierre can walk mm -hmm. on, waltz on to battle with the big white hat and present himself. Um, but now things are getting real um, and, and, and really affecting. Um, this is a turning point in everything that all of these people will ever know. And this is what Tolstoy is writing about. 1812 was pivotal. It changes the course of history, not just in Russia, but throughout, throughout. the world. Yeah. And what Napoleon, Napoleon when he leaves um, Bernardino, I mean, he is on his way down. 1815, he's done. But this he this was right up to the this. Time. They didn't know this, but right up until this point, he was rising, rising, rising. He will never be where he was again before Bordino. And, and no one in Russia will be the same either because up until this point, they've lived lavish lifestyles. They've been going to the Winter Palace and balls and operas and and basically um, living in, on credit. Um, <laughs> they don't know that the fall is coming, that there's nothing behind all of this, that their leaders are not there, that France is not going to come in um, and save them. And, um, and there are people who are on the French side, and there are people on the, like Vasily, who vacillates. I thought he was a brilliant character. We didn't talk about in the group, but he was, when yes, he was at yes, the French yes. um, people, people who were side with the French, oh, yes, the French <laughs> will come in and we'll be civilized and we'll have all of these wonderful things. And then he'd forget himself when he was with the Russians who were very pro-Russia, pro-Alexander, and he'd say something pro-French, and then he'd be like, oh, where, which room am I in? <laughs> where am I supposed, right. What am I supposed to say? That was so one of those comic, there were several moments of comic, of comic relief, relief. here. Yeah. One is where he was criticizing Kutuzov as being an old blind guy yeah. who didn't know what he was doing. And then they showed him after Kutuzov was named the commander in chief of the army. He says, "I told you he was brilliant." Yeah. <laughs> and he was the. And then they have a guy who's kind of clueless, and they say, "Wait a minute, you just uh, yeah. aren't you the one who said he couldn't it? see?" And he says, no, "No, no, 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 no." I told. And, and it was a, such a classic vacillate because he does vacillate between you. And it was, you know, Tolstoy wrote that with a smile on his face. Yes. I mean, you read it because it was so so obvious that Vasily had switched uh -huh. what he believed because mm -hmm. Kutuzov now was the savior. What do they call him? Your serenity? Your, Your serenity. Your serenity. He became, yeah, became the commander-in-chief. Yeah. Um, and I so. think that, like, because volume two was more of, like, a typical romantic novel, it had a lot of, um, uh, well, it was just more peacetime, too, yeah. and it drew us into the personal lives of the families. We're so invested in them from volume two that we can handle some of the more painful parts of volume three. And we, we experience the history and the politics and the philosophy that he's sharing with us differently because we are so invested in mm -hmm. the individual lives of these people. And so it accomplishes Tolstoy's goal of helping us to empathize and to understand on, on a grander level than we might otherwise be capable of. Because honestly, like I was not going to spend 2016 learning about 1812. But now that I'm so invested in these characters, I feel 
more interested and intrigued by what you've just said about 1812 being being this turning point and just kind of thinking I don't know I, I just I th- feel like he offers a way in yeah in so many different ways emotionally but also just historically and philosophically and the content reflects what's going on like just before the war he was always talking about the merrymaking and the celebration and the yeah. naivete and the cluelessness and the the and chapter two was our naivete our cluelessness our romp if you will mm. we went to the balls we went through to the opera we we went and we went through all of society in these plays and then we were <laughs> cut down in three and realize all of this is um not going to last all of this we are we it's done it's over and there's a sea change in the world people are reading about um, you know, all the great philosophers and, and even Maria's um, servants are rising up against her once they know mm-hmm. her father's dead. They go, well, this is our opportunity mm-hmm. now. We're seeing all these people high up. They don't have control. They, they, they aren't going to be able to lead us. They can sense this already. And so you're already seeing the um, beginnings of a revolutionary thought that surfs could rise up against their own leaders, that freedom could be an option. Perhaps the French would come in and free them. Um, they don't have to listen to Maria and her, her um, father, Andre. So it's, a, it's really um, interesting. Everything that everyone had thought they knew to be true up until this point, the rug has been pulled out from underneath them. And I think there's such a wonderful interweave of images that reinforce that idea. Mm -hmm. For example, in the war, in the battle, there ends being so much smoke that you can't tell who the enemy is. And in when the smoke clears, both literally and figuratively, I think, in this novel, Tolstoy comes in with some insights like, I wrote at the top of one of the pages, this singer, a word spoken is silver, unspoken is gold. I mean, it seems that in all of the confusion and the the truth of human nature, he can distill certain pearls of incredible vision of what man is truly like mm-hmm. it it it's it's i find astounding it just for a book this thick and and full if you are willing to pay attention you find sentences that will never leave you mm. yeah and I- images and sentences and I, I agree and to go back to the surf point, one of the things, I thought there were more common Russians in this section yeah. than any of the others in the battle scenes mm-hmm. and the other scenes. And and there's a hint, you know, when he wrote this, obviously the Bolshevik Revolution hadn't happened yet, yeah. but several times he drops in hints where these common people, there's one when we're talking about one fella, one, they call him the piddler diddler. He's just a little <laughs> yeah. half-educated yeah. merchant. And he says, this is a, a nobleman speaking about him, uh, he says, he listened to some lectures and thinks he can pluck the devil by the beard. And I'm thinking, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, talk about a hint of things to come in Russia. Mm-hmm. And other times, too, there are these common people like Dron or Drone, D-R-O-N, who, mm-hmm. who is a leader of the Muziks, you know, the local people. And he rises up when, when the old prince dies and he's talking to Maria. And you get these little moments of the common people rising up. It doesn't go well all the time for him, but 
and then you have it's just the birth of a new yeah. You see it sprinkled throughout here, and those are some of the, I think some of the funnest characters to read about because they, they he has a good touch with the common people. Mm-hmm. Most of this mm-hmm. book is about noblemen mm-hmm. and generals and people who dress fancy mm-hmm. and go to balls or you know run armies. Mm-hmm. But then you get these great little characters mm-hmm. that we talked about in the discussion group, like Lavrushka, the little cunning serf who switches over, switches masters whenever he feels like he needs to, including to Napoleon for a while. He kind of hangs out with Napoleon thinking, is that going to help me? Um, (laughs) And they have other people like that that are just sprinkled throughout the book Mm -hmm. that are a hint of the common Russian person really comes, they're all men as it happens, but they really come forward in this this book. He delivers a lot of tweaks to the leadership. Um, Yeah. Napoleon, yeah. Alexander, the general. Alexander's nowhere in this volume, by yeah. the way. He's, this whole 300 pages, where was the czar? Yeah. D- I mean, isn't he, he at nowhere. the beginning when he's sent away, basically? Yeah, and then he's nowhere. For <laughs> leaving. Get that out was, of the military. Yeah. His country's the being people, invaded. The people <laughs> around him are really a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they get rid of him, get yeah, him out of back, there. Go back and stir up, or, you know, stir up support, mm-hmm. stir up patriotism, get the nobles to commit resources. Mm-hmm. And then he, I guess, decamps to Petersburg or something because he's nowhere near yeah, Moscow right. when he's the invasion happens. Again. He's never even mentioned. So. How would things have been different if he had been in Moscow to get people to... Well, there well, is that I hint f- that people were going to rise up and defend the city, but then the army deserted the city. So um, And the, but the general's point was whether they fight or they stay, they die anyway. Right. But they die... People are going to die. like that. There's no way out of battle. And I think that's mm-hmm. the great equalizer. And that's why we see so many of these juxtapositions of the, the, the common man with the wealthy man or the good man with the bad man, like mm-hmm. Anatole and Andre lying together on the tables next to each other. Mm-hmm. Brutal, brutal, brutal the scene. Surgical ward the surgical the ward after battle. Yeah. And where Anatole's leg is being um, cut off or sawed off. And um, you get this, this scene very... Um, it shows that great equalizer here in all of this is death is yeah. coming. It's coming for all of you, whether you are mm-hmm. adorned in gold and rich or not. And he, and he even says, and it's yeah, ma- just quickly, man cannot possess anything as long as he fears death. Yeah. So I think that the mortality of the theme is running throughout all of this. Mm-hmm. And that's where he kind of lays it out for us that, um, Especially that scene with Anatole and Andre, where mm-hmm. they, they, they he comes to recognize Andre, who who felt he was in some way su- superior, and in the beginning he was actually on the hunt. I'm gonna find this guy and kill him mm-hmm. myself. Right. I'm gonna, and I'm um, yeah, gonna get this bravado. I have to. He has to wait for the right moment. He has to wait for the right moment, and yeah. then the moment comes where he sees this basically a boy lying with his leg um, being cut off. That he realizes his human nature and his compassion and his desire to help or understand and forgive. Um, and that's kind of a turning point for him. And he, he's, he's starting to realize that all of these things, the politics, the war, the money, the land, all of that is useless. Um, and he kind of comes to this, I guess, this, this unif- um, unity with the creator, the divine. And it's that a religious point. conversion. A religious I mean, conversion. He believes in the power of divine love, love as we talked about yeah, and that's going to save us all the bummer is that it always happens right before someone kicks the bucket yeah, yeah. You know, he's it's mortally like wounded yeah. if, if you could have that realization and go forward in living exactly. you know it'd be a very different but Natasha well, gets it of, um, I think uh, we, we talked about that um, school of life video about yeah. Leo Tolstoy mm-hmm. um, 
the narrator talks about the death of uh, Ivan Illich, yes. which I have not read, but that that's the central thesis of that book is that if we would all just live with an awareness of death, that it's happening to all of us, that we would all be, you know, kinder and live Better. with more empathy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I mm -hmm. that's loaded in all these pages, yes. too. And, oh, you know, I, he yeah. published this at age 41, so we can assume that he only becomes more aware of mortality as he goes on to publish Anna Karenina and Death of a And he Eden. goes through a period of depression where he becomes suicidal after this book was written. So I, th I think it, he also recognizes it's one of these things we evolve. We get to this realization yeah. and then we, we are lulled into reality and we forget it mm -hmm. and we move, we go about our daily life and we forget this important fact that we're mortal, that we're going to die and that we have to be better human beings to each other. But I do feel like Natasha, he gives some sense to Natasha because she is this, she falls in a different way. She doesn't fall in war. She's a fallen woman for, for no other reason than she falls for CAD. And, but she, she breaks an engagement, but that is scandalous um, by their um, standards. But she, she goes to church. She fasts. She tries to gain forgiveness and understanding, and um, she gets in touch with herself in a way that she 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 wasn't before. She was kind of, you know, flighty. flitting around yeah, and making you know her way through the world and being very much like a young woman would, you know, falling in love and not really thinking about other people's feelings and acting on her urges. And I feel like she gets to the point where she realizes I can be better. And I, I can love. And I think she shows that by Sorry. she's the one that convinces the Rostov family to take off all the uh, fancy stuff and put right. injured soldiers right. in their caravan as they're leaving the city. And that's her. And, of course, her dad is a soft touch. I mean, she could convince her dad of anything. Oh. The old count is just this soft-hearted kind of absent-minded fella. And, and even though the countess says you, people are all crazy, she's not, she can't take on Natasha and, and the count together. And... She says, come on, Dad, basically, come on with all these injured soldiers that we can get rid of some of these dresses and some of these mm -hmm. chests and drawers. And, right. and that is her acting on this yeah. new mm -hmm. religious conversion she's seen. Is. And so her, their caravan leaves town with these you know, wagons full of injured soldiers and all their stuff is left in the house. And we know what's going to happen to all the manor houses of Moscow. They're all going to burn. Well, and so the fact that she, ha she realizes that they need to unload the silver and make room for the wounded soldiers also sets the stage for her connect reconnecting with Prince Andre. With Andre. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, if she hadn't, hadn't kind of left behind her, her flippant attitude, I don't think that we would have, it would have been believable for them to reconnect, mm -hmm. which that was my favorite part. I love. Me too. I love seeing Prince <laughs> Me Andre. Me too. And, and, oh. and when she does right, appear, it's almost deliberately crafted as if she were an angel, angel yes. coming yes. down the white from yeah. heaven yes. in the middle of the night tiptoeing on her soft supple feet stepping over stepping bodies over. <laughs> and yeah. you were sleeping you get the real next sense to Prince a little bit in love with Natasha yeah. I mean an <laughs> author who writes yeah. the kind of passages he writes about Natasha when he talks about her tiptoeing in her soft supple feet to go see Andre is like okay this guy's in love with Natasha yeah. Well, he's you created know, his he's perfect created this woman, perfect yes. the ideal, and the he's joyful, but very Russian. In a, in an yeah. interesting way, he's created her with her flaws that right. she is still lovable. Yes. Like she all didn't get an early reader read oh. it. It was like Leo, you got to add a couple flaws. Here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or <laughs> not no, or I, he's I reacting so significantly to the c chronic bickering with his yeah, wife. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. That his was wife, not his personal life. His yeah. wife yeah. was probably like. <laughs> 
Wait a Seriously? minute. <laughs> although, although, <laughs> although, it, I, I can't tell okay, you yeah, guys. You no, okay. no, no, stop. No, stop. stop. We're going to, we're going to wrap up. That's for next up, time. But okay. Mary is on the record as saying that this book has changed her life. She has finished. Um, so we can't ask her this question. But what are you hoping for in the final volume, Joe? I was very disappointed where Pierre ended up because he's one of my favorite characters. I think he's the moral center of this book. And he gets arrested and taken captive by the French for trying to help these people. So I really want something good to happen for Pierre. I mean, you know, you you thought he would get together with Natasha, but now she's back with Andre. And Pierre is just such a warm-hearted, humanistic, caring, big bear of a man. And you want something good to happen for him. So I'm certainly hoping, and I'm not going to look at you, Mary. Mary, um, can't, I can't even look at Mary right now because she has finished. Good happens. I know. Pierre. Do you want Natasha and Pierre to end up together? Uh, if that's what's right for maybe Maria, I don't know somebody or just yeah. something good to happen. Something good. How about something you? I want Andre to live. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. but he's got that dreadful yeah. hole in his that's side. Right. He's, he's in trouble. Doesn't seem like he's a good sign. I, I, I am concerned that that may yeah. be just too nice. And the angels already yeah. appeared. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, thank I, yeah. you. Thank you. I guys would like for, to just oh, add one thing. It's okay. not an ending, but right. I will say that I talked to um, the Russian author Elena Gorokova, who oh. was the one who wrote the Russian tattoo in the Mountain of Crumbs about War and Peace, because I told her I finally read it, mm. and she said, and I was like, I'm so angry that I waited till I was 40 to read it, and she goes, No, no, no. You had to wait till you were 40 to read it. You can only read War and Peace if you've lived. And I thought that was really profound. um, And it really touched me. And maybe she was just trying to make me feel better. (laughs) But I do think it's true. Like, you can't understand this book until you've lived almost... Um, Don't you just want to press this book into people's hands? Yes. Mm-hmm. I yes. just keep reading passages. Me too. It's very interesting too. what happens when you take the book into public. Yes. What happens? People's responses have been very interesting. Well, I can't wait to see how it ends. Thank you so much for being here, guys. Oh, thank fun. you for, sure. the, for joining this discussion. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on The Twelfth Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We are available on the iTunes store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile, L-I-B. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Mary Curran Hackett, Joe Hyde, Linda Maupin, and I'm Abby Moran. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com, where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.